The Bones and Bobbins podcast is now on Patreon. Would you Woo-hoo. like access to bonus episodes, digital extras, exclusive merch, and more? Join us in the Curiosity Shop at patreon.com backslash bones and bobbins. Your generous support helps make the show happen and will also earn you our very eternal gratitude wow. and entry into our private Patreon-only Facebook group. Which is where the cool kids are. Yeah, and it's all kinds of fun and exactly zero drama. It's the most amazing thing. Oh, I love a no-drama Facebook group. Yeah, just people dropping by and being a little bit creepy. Yep, yep, yep. And other people being like, I see you're creepy and uh, meet you with this. Yes, yes. Or raise you this. Mm -hmm. Oh, no. See, we've been talking for like... (laughs) I don't know, an hour? Like and we hit record, and now I sound like a frog. Ribbit. <laughs> Shit, man. <laughs> <laughs> you tell him, Ron Swanson. In a dusty old shop on a forgotten old street, You'll find two witches with books three boxes deep. Next to rusty old needles and faded red thread, you'll come in for yarn, but leave with pigments instead. Whether poisons or patterns, we're always discreet. Where creepy and crafty and morbidity meet. Welcome to the Bones and Bobbins podcast. Hello, Morbid Makers. We are your slightly creepy, mildly disconcerting, somewhat sinister, delightfully discomposed, opaquely odd, merrily morbid, and marvelously misanthropic hosts. And this is Bones and Bobbins, Season 2, Episode 4, Black Crepe and Black Widows. Ooh. Uh, I'm Haley from Red Handled Scissors and the Very Serious Crafts podcast and several books on your bookshelf. Yes, good books at that. And I'm Natalie from Uberdork Designs, an official Moonerino maker, which is now True Crime Creatives. Yay! Yay! So, hi. Hi. <laughs> How you doing? I, I just, I don't know. I think fine, except I'm turning into a frog. I I don't know. Podcasting just does that to me. Yeah. It's like a spell cast. Anyway, um, yeah. So it has been a a week of weather. Not weather like you're having, <laughs> but just sort of a confusing mess. Um. Because there's nowhere for weather to go in New York, it just sort of accumulates. Yeah. Because, well, let's be honest, I wasn't going to go outside anyway. (laughs) But especially because I wasn't going to go outside. Um, I finally watched the um, Elisa Lamb documentary. So did I. Yes, wait, shit, what was it called? Uh, the, uh, hotel. The Cecil Hotel. Yeah. Something or another. 
uh it's called crime scene the vanishing at the cecil hotel yes there we go i mean i've known about this for a long time and i think probably most people who are into either true crime or paranormal oh yeah know about it because paranormal podcasters take it in a completely different direction than yeah. true crime podcasters. Um, but it's fucking creepy. And it is. so if you aren't familiar, you're probably going to want to do a Google search. But the general idea is um, this student on break was traveling and she ended up in LA at what is the Cecil Hotel, but was uh, rebranded as something else at the time. Uh, And she disappeared. Like completely disappeared. Like disappeared, disappeared. Like cops showed up with dogs, didn't find her disappeared. And it's a massive, massive hotel. And it is, and an infamous one at that. I mean, it, it is. It's got um, uh, quite the history to it, especially the Night Stalker. Was Richard Ramirez right? Right. Yeah, Richard Ramirez. That's it. He uh, yes. he himself was he lived there for quite some time. Um, yeah. Yeah, there were uh, quite. There have been quite a few. Um, serial killers active there, but yeah, so it's it's just it's not an ideal place, and it's right near Skid Row in LA, and I've stayed at the Biltmore, which is also um, well, it used to be an extremely extremely fancy hotel and is the last known sighting of the Black Dahlia. Yes, um, and so. I've stayed there, which is also very near Skid Row, but I'm not sure where they are in relation to each other. But it's the kind of area where you don't walk. Right. Um, Like, people get nervous if they see you walking. Um, Like, I walked to Taco Bell or something. I don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, I I was there for um, a book show back when Mm -hmm. I was in book publishing. And... I walked to get something to eat and people who were experiencing homelessness crossed the street and looked at me like I had three heads. Yeah. And I was like, I, I, Taco Bell. Right. How else was I going to get there? (laughs) Um, Yeah. But yeah, they, they get real confused about New Yorkers who walk everywhere. Yeah. Um, but Yes, I. It was getting dark too, and so it was pretty clear the beginnings of how dangerous that area can be at night were starting to show. Yeah. And so, uh, all that is to say, this isn't the kind of place where you generally would wander. Right. Um, But it's not. I mean, LA broadly. Right isn't but as a student from canada it was super freaking cheap 
And if you didn't know, I mean, she was young. What, 23, I want to say? She was young. She was young. Yeah, and, she was 22 or 23, And I think. it would be very easy for her to not know the history behind this hotel and definitely the area. And it's weird having such a a crazy history in what is essentially a 700-room hotel. But by that yes, point... Yes, yes. Some of the rooms were like more like hostel than uh, actual rooms where like there'd be more than one person in it and you didn't know them and you shared a bathroom in the hall. Like it's it's so weird the different types of rooms and stuff that exist in this building and just hearing some of the history about it in the documentary was kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's definitely I don't know. It's it's something. Um, Oh, I guess they are relatively nearby. And apparently there are conspiracy theories involving the Black Dahlia and the Cecil Hotel as well. Yes. So that's the rabbit hole I will go down at some point. Mm -hmm. But um, so, yeah. uh, And the Cecil Hotel was also a residential hotel. Mm -hmm. Um, So there were a lot of different people staying there for uh, in different kinds of aspects so not everybody was just not everybody was traveling or um, some people lived there all the time Mm -hmm. and like some people lived there for a week or just stayed the night like there was a lot of different things happening and the place already had a rather sinister reputation so when this girl went missing like it became a very big deal and because it was recently she left a really really big digital footprint yes and so um there is a video of her which shows her jumping in and out of an elevator and making really interesting hand gestures and like the video is really creepy so start there if you're going to watch something start there with no context and just watch um but it is it's seriously creepy and as someone, uh, I don't want to obviously go through the whole thing, but the elevator footage is really interesting to me because as someone who is on the autism spectrum, her hand motions look really familiar to yes. me. And um, like they are not dissimilar to stimming. And they are also what I do... Like, if I'm trying to... Because I'm I'm really short, and so sometimes I don't trip motion sensors, mm. like for doors and things like that. Um, like at big box shopping centers, the big sliding doors, I don't always trip them. So sometimes <laughs> I have to stand there and jump around um, t- so they know that there's a person at the door and open. And so she was doing... I could see myself making exactly the same motions and, and she, like 
trying to get the elevator to go. Right. And that's the thing. Because the door wouldn't close. Yeah. You can see that it's not closing. And she lights up one. She goes down the line on just one of the lines of the elevator buttons and pushes them all. Yeah. The first time. The second time. time, She does basically all of them. But that's also what I would do. Like to get an elevator to move that is not moving for reasons like i don't know it's any there are about a million and 37 different takes on this particular footage there is that is mine i think she's trying to trigger the um laser sensor to close the door uh but lots of people like think that what she's doing looks very paranormal and there's an elevator game an elevator game yeah uh, that it open is, a portal to hell or something like that <laughs> like, I don't yeah and you open a portal to somewhere yeah. um but they think that maybe she was playing that and the timestamp is all fucked up and right so there's just a lot going on there and so this documentary though it makes me want to yell in many places mm-hmm. it also brings up a lot of points it does Um, it does um and not knowing i I think it brings out a lot of facts that were not known before or got overlooked in the grandiosity of the what the fuck happened because she is eventually found yes and even how she's found is just as messed up and doesn't yeah, make like, sense. It's a thing that you you could do it yourself in theory, but you would have to plan it and you would like it wouldn't be easy. No, and you would have to have prior knowledge of the construction of the building and there's a lot there's just a lot that you would have to Well, I think anybody who's lived in a big city uh, would expect water towers on a roof because any any building that's over a certain number of floors has mm-hmm. water towers on the roof because that's Karen. how they maintain water pressure um, on the upper floors. Is that a universal because, thing? Because she's from Canada. Yeah. I don't know if that's a... Uh, she's from Vancouver, oh, okay, which is yeah. pretty city, the like big it. city. So... Yeah, I mean, it is, it's not like New York City, but it's, right, right. I've been there. Um, I so, just remembered yeah. another Cecil Hotel thing. The, Ooh. I want to say it's the fifth season of American Horror Story. Uh, the one with Lady Gaga in it that takes place in a, in a hotel, even though uh, part of the plot line is based on H.H. Hol- H. Holmes, which we've covered. Um, but the actual structure of the hotel and the lobby and stuff, I think, was either filmed at the Cecil or was based yeah, on the Cecil. Yeah, that sounds right. Because it's it's definitely takes place. The hotel itself is right off in, in the city, like where it's placed, yeah. and the and the the lobby itself looks very similar. The lobby, the Cecil's gorgeous. Like, just oh, it's gorgeous. it's amazing, not, and it still is. It is. It's so. It's so weird. Mm-hmm. Like, the whole thing together is just... Yeah, I well, old hotels in that area of L.A. are very strange creatures because mm-hmm. they are left over from a time of a lot more opulence. Oh, definitely. 
And so, like, the lobby of the Biltmore, for example, is absurd. Right. Like, I I don't even... I just... I walked in and just stood there. That's, and, and we have a couple a hotels studio. like that in Milwaukee. Yeah. Like, the Fister is totally like that. And also... Did rumored, you say Fister? Yeah. The Fister Hotel. Huh. Not, like, Fist Her. <laughs> <laughs> because of the PF. <laughs> All right, I'm but done. Also, um, there's also, like, a, many a ghost story about it as well. But, uh, but yeah, oh, yeah, definitely by and, I mean, era. Yeah, and so... Like, those parts are often kept very nice, and they're often, like, marble and shit, so they're a little Mm -hmm. easier to not have them fall into disrepair. But the room that I was in, which was a ridiculous suite, um, had things that don't exist in (laughs) modern hotel rooms, um, specifically a dressing room. Oh, okay. Um, But... Also, a doorway that was locked, but um, I played. Uh, <laughs> and there was a doorway to the back stairs. Ah. Because obviously your maid yeah. would be serving you meals and helping you dress and whatnot. So it was just... It, it's really weird. So when you're thinking about these hotels, definitely don't imagine like a Holiday Inn. Right, right, right. Because, uh, I mean, the Biltmore is also kind of shitty at this point. Like the inside. I mean, it's it's not bad. It's it's pretty it's nice for what it is. Right. It's very dated. Yeah. It's very dated. Um, but yeah, uh, it's. It's very weird. Anyway, uh, we've probably gone on about weird <laughs> hotels in L.A. for long enough, and we could do an entire oh, yeah. episode on, like, the structure of hotels, uh, those hotels, and the hauntings within them, and, Oof, definitely, you know, the places that people think are antennas and, <laughs> and ley lines, all manner of nonsense. Um, but anyway, we won't, because that's not what we're talking about today. Not today. Not today. No. So your overall yay or nay on it, what did you think? I haven't watched the, um, the final one yet. Oh, okay. I mean, I, I know all about the thing, so I, I know. Um, do you mean whether she did it herself or whether somebody did it to her? Ooh, that too. I was just going for overall opinion on the documentary. And then, yeah. Uh, uh, Overall opinion on the documentary, totally worth watching. Agree. If you know a lot about it, it'll make you mad. Yes. Um, Yes. In certain parts. (laughs) Yes. That was mine exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that the manager of that hotel, uh, oh. Did you want to hit her? I... Either wanted, I I feel about her the same way as I feel about Ira Glass. I either want to punch her or I want to hug her, and I'm not sure which. And get her some therapy. There's got to be therapy involved because there's some serious. But I will say that, like, 
some of the things she says, like, she comes off as sketchy when I don't think she should. Right, right. Um, like, people pick apart her calling her mom before she called the police. Who among us wouldn't text our best friends or call our moms and be like, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit, mm-hmm. what do I do? I, I mean, yeah. come on. This, that isn't suspicious activity, and literally no one asks uh, or right. acts about. Mm-hmm. Nobody acts the way they're supposed to act. Right, because it's not a like a real really, situation. Right, you can't really gauge it. You can like you that has never know. happened. That anybody has acted the way we think we're supposed to act. Right. <laughs> um, anyway, no, we could we could go on. We probably should not. In fact, we should probably cut some of that because <laughs> that is not what this podcast is about. No, but it is our all. little intro. So. Yes. But if you've seen it, uh, talk to us about it in our Patreon Facebook group. Yes. I want to hear your opinion. Yes. And what what are your thoughts? Um, mine are pretty much the same exact as yours, which is, oh, my gosh, so surprising. Um and also, <laughs> though they lay out some facts that were not known before, which kind of make it seem anticlimactic, I'm not entirely buying the anticlimacticness of it. No, I, I'm going to go out there and personally say I think that someone from the hotel was involved. I agree. I absolutely agree. And I do not know how much the manager does or does not know or does or does not expect or suspect. I, I think that manager has seen a lot of shit and not... It was like, what, 80 bodies? Yeah, and not known how to process any of it. Um, and I think that she's probably in a lot of denial about a lot of things. Um, so yeah. after I punch her, I would then hug her and scoot her off. And send her therapy. straight to therapy. Yeah. <laughs> so. All right. Definitely. Good. I, I, I'm glad we're, <laughs> we're there on, on that point. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about some murder. <laughs> yeah. Uh, before we do, we're just going to take a really quick break to thank all of our fantastic Curiosity Shop members over on Patreon. If you yes, want to be we love one. you. This is the point of the podcast where we would give you a totally creepy... Wait, nope, that's not right. Totally normal. Not at all creepy. <laughs> Welcome to our to our our, our, our group, but um, we don't have any new ones We're not this awkward. Time. Um, yeah, and awkward is awkward as shit is how we roll. Uh, yeah. But yeah, so thank you to our, fan, our Curiosity Shop members. You guys are the absolute best, and... Yeah, and yeah. we would totally go explore hidden old graveyards in the woods or possibly the Cecil Hotel. Right. You. Absolutely. The back stairwell. Just saying. That somebody may or may not know how to pick the lock to get into. Totally go in there with you. I don't think it was locked. I think people used it as for smoke breaks. Oh, yeah. For sure. I'm just going to throw that out there. I totally, uh, totally see that. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, or somebody crawled out a window. It's not hard to get on a fire escape. That is the literal point. Right. Right. Exactly. (laughs) So true. Anyway, so uh, you could argue about whether or not it was a fire escape or uh, backstairs, but 
Okay, anyway. Murder. <laughs> murder. Not that murder. Right, uh, not that or a one. potential murder. We're talking no. about some uh, some female crime. With this, what? Well, we're talking about some. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about some black widows. Black widows. Ooh. Yeah. Yes, and not of the arachnid variety. No, not of the arachnid kind. Uh, of the human kind. Um, and I just want to say, holy hell, there are so many different definitions and interpretations of what a black widow is on the internet like yes from any woman who uses her quote charms to woo and then murder to any woman that kills for profit charms meaning vagina i guess uh maybe a kneecap if we're talking like victorian era uh ankles right (laughs) how you like them cankles honey um <laughs> to, to like the exceedingly gross number of articles claiming that there's women that hate men and woo them just to treat them like shit like there's a ton of articles warning men especially dads on how to avoid dating a black widow and how to oh, tell if you're dating oh yeah it's um, like i got angry i got stupid get over angry. yourself men right yeah. The like, vast majority of us would not take the time right? to plan out your death. We are so sick of your bullshit. We're not <laughs> trying to find up. another one. We're just trying to find one that goes against the bullshit. Like, we're we're trying to, yeah, no, uh-uh. We're trying to elevate. So my original <laughs> approach was going to be the psychology behind Black Widows, um, the conditions that led up to wanting to poison your husband and so on. Uh, but the research is all over the place, uh, like so much so. I finally decided that um, that I was and just some gonna... of the reasons are just really obvious, right? <laughs> like old school black widows, which it's so like funny. because men, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because patriarchy. Um, old school black widows, totally different than like if you just Google black widow, like this, like a, a more modern case comes up and this woman gets attributed to it. I'm like. Honey, by the time your giant blonde hair in the 70s came around, like, that was old school shit. Like, most of the time, like, when I think of Black Widows, I think of, you know, like, arsenic. (laughs) Just arsenic. Um, But anyway. Strychnine. Right. So, I'm going to talk about... Soaking that flypaper. The pure and original definition and where it comes from Mm -hmm. is basically the female spider with the same name who mates and then kills. So that's mm-hmm. that's the definition I'm going with. Now, my favorite OG Black Widow goes back to the 1500s, Lucretia Borgia. Ooh. And mm. she kicked off the fashion of a ring with a secret compartment for poison in. In fact, the whole Borgia family deep dive it sometime. Uh... But Lucretia was said to use hers to kill husbands and political rivals. But I was super shocked. Uh, A ton of newer research indicates that she was most likely just a scapegoat and didn't actually murder any of them. Yeah. And that makes me a little sad, but also just rules her out. So, uh, So she was off the list. And I wanted to keep it Victorian, as that's the era we're talking about today. Uh, and then I had like a also poison rings are real obvious. Yeah, just, they are, and they are almost never poison. Right, <laughs> <laughs> a little cocaine, but uh, also very well. They're still very fun. 
Um, but so again, I had a, a tough time picking. Uh, there are some real doozies during the Victorian era. Uh, so I'm going to do a deep dive, a mini deep dive on two mm-hmm. ladies, uh, one in England and one in the U.S. But before I dive into the first gal, I want to shout out an honorable mention uh, of Leonardo Cianciulli, because sometimes the only way to protect your drafted son from the terrors of wars is a little human sacrifice and cannibalism. Uh, she's better known as the soap maker of Corrigio, and she murdered three oh, women dear. between 1939 Adam and 1940. Yep. She turned their bodies into soap and tea cakes. So cool. it was really hard not to do her. Um, but I linked in the show notes for the reading some stuff for you to read up on her because, I mean, come on. Cannibalism, soap, and tea cakes. Yeah. Um, also, if you want to hear more about human soap and candles, yeah. head on over to our episode on the catacombs. Yes. In Paris. And also. Because it features. It does. Also, uh, her murdering three women doesn't make her technically a black widow. Unless it was a lesbian situation, which I don't think that it was. But even then, interesting. But first up, I'm going to talk about somebody you've probably already heard of. And that's Mary Ann Cotton. Now, Mary Ann is often dubbed the first female serial killer of the UK. But that is false. Uh, Betty Eccles was suspected of murdering multiple uh, people, and she was hung in 1843. Sarah Chesham killed four people and was executed in 1851. Both of those lovely ladies, arsenic. But well, the idea of the thing that was a serial killer didn't exist. Right, 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 right. Um, and not until very recently. Right. So while Marianne is accredited as it, she's not really the first one. Like women came before her uh and i'm guessing word spread maybe there's like an underground newsletter who knows that literally happened um <laughs> there we go in in one group of women who poisoned their husbands there you go there was whispery whispery stopped by such and such as cabin and uh pick up a little something that's a hell of a pta club uh, so right. Marianne was <laughs> Marianne was born in Low Morsley in County Durham, which is northeast England, on get this October thirty first in mm. eighteen thirty two to working Burn class the parents. Witch. All right, uh, her childhood proved difficult and not without tragedy. Uh, she had a sister Margaret who died in eighteen thirty four, only a few months after being born. And then in 1842, her coal miner father fell 150 feet to his death. Oh, uh, ah, that's not it's, good. It gets even worse because Victorian era, Marianne's mother, Margaret, received her husband's body in a bag marked property of the South Hetton Coal Company. And because the cottage they lived oh, in was yeah. tied to the job, they were evicted. Um, mm-hmm. So Margaret had to act pretty quickly and in 1843 she married another man who was a minor as well named George Stott as a means of keeping a roof over her and her family's heads yeah that happened a lot yeah Marianne and George did not get along uh she left home to the nearby village of South Hetton when she was 16 trained as a nurse did find work but then three years later after all the children that she was in that were in her care 
went off to boarding school, she then returned back home and began to train as a dressmaker. She married her first husband, William Mowbray, in 1852 in the Newcastle-upon-Tyne Registry Office. Mm -hmm. Now, the couple frequently moved in their early years of marriage, but settled in Hendon and Durham in 1856. Mm -hmm. It's really difficult to find much evidence relating uh, to Mary Ann, her husband, and the children they had together due to a lack of documentation of both birth and death certificates. However, yeah. it is best estimated that they had that she had nine kids and all but three were dead by 1864. The only birth that was actually recorded was of their daughter, Mary Jane, that was born at St. Germans in 1856. Uh, she died in 1860. They had another daughter, Isabella, born in 1858. Uh, yet another daughter, also named Margaret Jane, was born in 1861. <laughs> uh, John Robert William was born in 1863, but died the following year. None of these deaths are registered, um, even though registration was compulsory at the time. The law itself was not actually enforced until 1874. Well, and a lot of records were lost to various fires along the way. So it's entirely possible that they're just not complete. Exactly. Uh, So William died of an intestinal disorder uh, in January of 1865. What could it be? Right? At some point, he had purchased a life insurance policy covering himself and the couple's remaining three children. Um, Okay. After the death of Mowbray, Mary Ann moved. Although she began a relationship with a man named Joseph Natris, she moved yet again. And then um, after one of her children died of gastric fever. Oh, dear. That stage, uh, only one of the nine kids she had with Mowbray was now alive. And gastric fever was a common ailment back then, but it also has the same symptoms as arsenic poisoning. Marianne found important. Well, yeah, I mean, water right. wasn't great. Right. Oh, yeah. No, no, it was not. Um, hygiene in general was not a just priority. No, and so many children. I don't, yeah. never mind. So I'm going to leave it. <laughs> Marianne found employment as a nurse, and it was there that she met her next husband, George Ward. They were married in August of 1865, but the marriage didn't last long. Uh, Ward was already in poor health, but Marianne gave him just a little nudge. And he died in in October of 1866. Now, Hmm. although his doctor acknowledged Ward's poor health, he was surprised that the man died so suddenly. Nonetheless, Marianne evaded suspicion, even though she collected more insurance money and moved on to her next target, the recently widowed James Robinson. The couple met when Robinson hired Marianne as his housekeeper in November of 1960, or 1866. Ah, tale as old as time. Right. Uh, by the time they got married in August of 1867, so that's less than a year, three of Apparently Robinson's, she was giving it up real fast. Right. Three mm-hmm. of Robinson's children and his mother had died. Oh, Marianne's oh last remaining daughter, Isabella, also succumbed to gastric fever, 
And Marianne received more insurance money. Now, I... Call me... So she liked to fucking kill. Right. I Would you not be like... Uh, and I, I feel great about the fucking. Let's right. be clear. Like, right. when I say she gave it up real fast, I'm impressed. Right. Not... Uh, for the time period, not judgmental. Right. Totally. Uh, so she had two children with Robinson, but the first one, Margaret Isabella, died within a few months of her birth. I gotta say... Wait, how many are we up to now? I don't know, but how many of them are named Margaret or Isabella? Like, seriously, I gotta say she wasn't really creative in the name department, which makes me sad because... I it, think that was really normal it, it's back clear- then when child mortality rates were so high. Right. It, it, it's clear that she knew she wasn't going to be attached or she didn't want to get attached. The kid factor makes me want to punch her hard. Uh, so Robinson yes. didn't seem to link Mary Ann with the numerous deaths in his family. But he certainly became suspicious when she became overly insistent that he ensure his own life. Then he found mm-hmm. out that she owed 60 pounds and had also stolen 50 pounds she was supposed to put in the bank. And that's pounds. And that's and a lot of money at the time. It was. And that shoot. You know what? I looked up a whole bunch of how much that's worth now and I didn't look those up um whatever so he decided to then throw her out of their home and retain custody of their only surviving child George however the couple did not not because she killed everybody else but because of the money yep uh, of the money okay uh so Marianne was destitute barely surviving on the streets bailed out by her friend what's her friend's name fucking Margaret uh, who introduced her to her brother, Frederick Cotton. Can we just call her Maggie or something? Seriously, I... there's so many Margarets to keep track of. Uh, so Frederick was also a widower who had lost two of his four children. In March of 1870, Margaret, the friend, died from a mysterious stomach problem, which allowed Marianne oh. to then sink her claws into the Cotton family. Well, because those kids need a mother. They do. They need a mother. So the couple was married in September of 1871, but since Marianne had not divorced Robinson, it was a bigamous marriage. They had a son named Robert. Oh. It gets real crazy now. So they had a son named Robert in, which Robert Robinson, come on guys, in early 1871. (laughs) But Marianne discovered that her former lover, Natras, Natras, he lived 30 miles away in the west village of West Auckland, and he was no longer married. So she persuaded him to move his family closer. And in December of 1871, Cotton died of gastric fever. Once again, Oops. she profited from the insurance policy. But the relationship then moved on to Natras, but it didn't last very long because he died in 1872 from, you guessed it, gastric fever. Is it possible that they... That all of these people just did not know her for long enough to know. I'm guessing about all of the death. I I I don't even know. Like I seriously. And like the one who was suspicious about the life insurance. Right. I mean, I think that you would be real careful. Right. Um. So that. He died, of course, right after amending his will in Marianne's favor. Oh, of course. 
by now, she had become pregnant with a child by uh, an excise officer named Richard Quickman. So I mean, she get that D right, um, but maybe use protection. Uh, by the I don't time, think that was possible. I know. <laughs> by the time, well, I mean, actually, yeah. it probably was at that point, but it was reusable. Right. Yuck. It wasn't. It wasn't the best, but you know. Uh, Whatever. By the time Natras died, Marianne had poisoned Robert, her infant son, with cotton, and Frederick Jr., her stepson. Despite all of oh. the deaths, there were still allegedly no evidence against Mary Ann, and she was completely free from su- some suspicion, which I don't understand. Are we up to, like, 14 or 15 kids at this point? At least. Uh, and uh, this wow. is where she got a little overconfident. And... Uh, made a giant freaking oopsie so as it always happens right as natural you get a little comfortable you let things slip let things slip to i don't know a religious person uh oh yeah so natris had very few possessions uh so i'm guessing she just went after him because she must just really liked him uh she didn't care a whole lot about the money but of course she made sure she got something But she was once again in uh, financial difficulty. Apparently, what was she spending her money on? That's another question I have. Was she just buying arsenic? Like it can't be that expensive. Is she funding her arsenic habit? I I mean, it's rat poison. Maybe went to protection. It might have been more expensive back then. I have no idea. But I wonder. I mean, you only bought one. Yeah. I I don't know. I wondered that as well especially while she was married why why would you not why would you have to steal from your husband like i don't understand that maybe i feel like maybe she had like a clothing or gambling problem i feel like i maybe heard that someplace else but that would make sense that is not true so uh apparently marianne complained to a parish official named thomas riley that her stepson charles edward cotton was preventing her from marrying Quick Man. That's the guy that put the bun in the Quick Man. Yeah. Apparently he is. (laughs) He lives up to it. Uh, So she asked Riley if he would commit Cotton to a workhouse. And when the suggestion was rebuffed, she said this to Riley. I won't be troubled long. He'll go like all the rest of the Cottons. Within a few days, Charles Edward died. And when Riley found out, he was like, um, excuse me, Mr. Doctor, sir, before you write that death certificate, uh, you may want to, I don't know, fully investigate that death. And, uh, an examination of the body revealed arsenic in his stomach. Further exhumations on the bodies of two of other Cotton, two of Cotton's other children and Natris found traces of poison as well. And see, that's the problem with heavy metal poisoning. Yeah. Like literal heavy metal. Right. It sticks around like it's not. <sighs> yeah. So she was finally caught. She was charged with the murder of Charles Edward Cotton and her trial began in March of 1873. Her attorney tried to argue that the boy's death came as a result of accidental inhalation of arsenic from the wallpaper. However, <laughs> well, I don't, were they that rich? I don't, not if she keeps spending money. Like, mm. however, Maybe that's the, what she was spending money on. Right, the Maybe it was just arsenic green everything. Everything, everything. 
all arsenic all the time. Uh, however, the judge allowed the prosecutor to use evidence from the deaths of Natris and two of the Cotton children, and ultimately the overwhelming evidence sealed Marianne's fate. She was found guilty and sentenced to die. She was hanged at Durham County Goal on March 24th, 1873, but it was a bungled execution. Damn, damn, damn. Yep. The trap door wasn't placed high enough to break her neck. She only oh. fell two feet, so the executioner had to push down on her shoulders. <gasps> After three minutes, she died of strangulation. Now, I would consider this brutal, but the bitch killed kids, so I think it's fitting that she suffered. That's just me. Yeah, the, the thing is, pet. I wonder if uh, the court knew about the what four other families she had had there i um, don't know i mean especially if there's not birth wow. and death certificates there's probably not marriage certificates if she moved far enough away i mean that would be registered at the local right like marriage was usually registered because you'd need that to inherit right so Marianne huh. Cotton did not actually confess to a single murder. And while the true number of victims is unknown, most sources believe that she killed up to 21 people. And that yes. is the brief trip down Mary Cotton got... I. She fucked with the kids. She fucked with the kids. Like, it's bad enough to fuck with human lives in general but the kid part really pisses me off also yeah. how do the how do these and i i've seen photos of her and granted it was a different time period but um, <laughs> my dance card is not nearly as full as hers was and i'm now questioning my own self <laughs> all right hold on i'm gonna i'm gonna look at a photo i mean she's not she's just very She's not delicate and oh. pretty. She's very, I don't know. Like, I. Well, I mean. I'm, she's. Handsome. She is handsome. She, she is. actually, her, yes, she has a very square jaw. Um, very strong features. Yes. I don't know. Oh, here's an older picture of her. Let's see. Nineteen-year-old her was fine. Her husband looks like Abraham Lincoln. Right. She's not exactly a stunner, but no, and nobody right. aged well at She's that point. Oh no. Anyway, I saw well her at forty. I was like, that's that's what forty looked like back then. Oof. Well, um, I mean, that's what forty looked like when you were uh committing a bunch of murders and trying to cover them up <laughs> right and plus victorian times i mean it was people are aging quickly so next yeah. up we've got tilly klimek tilly is allegedly chicago's most prolific female serial killer hmm Tilly was born Otilia Gubrick on October 22nd, 1877 in Poland and came to the U.S. as an infant with her parents where they would settle in the little Poland section of Chicago. 
Okay. Now, not a lot is known about Tilly's childhood. Because, um, again, I mean, it's 1800s. You know, I mean, documentation's not quite as quite as good. And I, I'm sure that they weren't expecting her to turn out the way she did. So they probably weren't, you know, starting a book early on her. But um, <laughs> by 1895, she married Joe Mik- Mikovich. So the marriage seemed to be a happy one. Like, they were super liked in the community. Everybody uh, thought they were great. Tilly earned a reputation as a really good cook, who also had the uncanny ability to predict impending deaths. These predictions came Why to her... Why is it always the cook? <laughs> right. These predictions came to her in dreams, and boy, did Tilly have many of them. Now, usually the dreams were of stray dogs that annoyed her or an argumentative neighbor. However, the Stray world... dogs? Yeah. Oh, no. Now, that's a line that... Yep. Yep. That's... I, I draw the line That's at... the line that, that she... Yeah. That's the one line she crosses that I'm not... I'm not keen on. Because um, pets are even more innocent than... As innocent as... They just don't. Don't fuck with the kids and the pets. It's not no. that tough. Uh, no, so, the internet says no. <laughs> at the time, the world would come to know that uh, Tilly wasn't really having premonition, you don't say. She oh. was merely stating times of death and penciling a murder in her schedule. Oh, um, okay. At the beginning of 1940. 1940- at least she was organized. Seriously. Uh, at the beginning of 1914, Tilly began telling friends and neighbors about a new vision. She dreamed her husband Joe was sick and would die within a few weeks. It was oh no, no no! It was no surprise then when that dream came true on January 13th, 1914. The coroner listed the cause of death as heart trouble. Tilly collected around a thousand dollars in life insurance. That's around $26,798 now. Okay. Uh, Tilly did not take long. I remember January 13th, 1914. He passed yes. away. This chick married Joseph Roskowski. Ros- Roskowski. Yeah, Roskowski. On February- you are from the Midwest. Oh. Get on that. Right, I know. I should have the, I should have the Polish names down. Uh, but so she married Joseph Roskowski on February 27th of 1914. And that like, was permissible if you needed uh, so the financial support of a man. Like if you had kids to support. I don't I don't think she did. Like all I know is she had a month of grieving and that was it. Once again, that's not how that worked then, right? Once again, damn, began to tell people her new husband would die. Joseph, who was the picture of health, started to get marry someone who keeps getting death visions. (laughs) Right, right. Like Uh, that is not sexy. I mean, no, 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 it's not. I I have been a twenty-something-year-old goth, so I. I can imagine a a way in which that might be a good pickup line, yeah, but not in this case. Like I don't. No death oracle. No, thank you. Right. So uh, poor Joseph 
started to get sick by May. Just oh, no. as Tilly predicted, Joseph passed away on May 20th, and he left Tilly $1,200 in cash and $722 in insurance, which is about $51,506 now. Oh, Joseph. Right? Now, shortly after Joseph's death, Tilly sought comfort in the arms of another man. That would be like Joseph Gaskowski. Oh, another Joseph? Yep. Uh, okay. Now, his sister Stella enjoyed candy with her brother and his new sweetheart. Both of them became violently ill, and Tilly's latest hmm. beau died, which I'm confused about because why would you kill him off before the insurance policy? Like, that one's a... I mean, maybe it's so there isn't a reason for those murders, so it sort of uh, breaks up the true. trail? Throws it off. So that way, I don't even Maybe remember. she just liked doing it. Right? Uh, so or she was testing a method. She married yet again uh-huh. in March of 1919, this time to Frank Joseph Kupchik. Now, probably. She Kupchik. just likes the Joseph yeah. name. Now, the couple lived at 924 North Winchester Avenue in Chicago. This address is important because Tilly lived there with a man uh, named Myers before who happened to go missing. Hmm, I wonder where he went. Right? When Frank moved in, Tilly again assured her neighbors he would not live long because psychic. Because she assured them like they were concerned that maybe she might have to deal with a long-term spouse. Right? Because (laughs) asshole... She taunted Frank with this prediction. It'll be any day now, she boasted as the man started to feel sick. He has two inches to live, Tilly told her neighbors as if she knew it for her fact. Frank, How was that not real obvious? And how did Frank not know? Frank grew weaker each passing day. Tilly asked him to take out a life insurance policy and he complied. Tilly took the opportunity to purchase a $30 coffin she saw in an advertisement, which is $804 now. Tilly asked the landlady, Martha Westlick, to store the casket in the basement. Martha was like, oh, (gasps) fuck no. Uh, You and that coffin can get the fuck out of here. That's not going to happen. Like, she was appalled. She was pre-purchasing a coffin on sale. Okay. So as Frank slipped in and out of miserable consciousness, Tilly sat by his side, knitting. She was making a hat with black lace trim. Describing her husband's lucid moments, Tilly told Frank, or during his lucid moments, Tilly told Frank it was the hat she intended to wear to his funeral. (laughs) What the fuck? What did Frank ever do to her? Right, this poor guy, this poor guy. Uh, Frank passed away April 20th, 1921, until they buried Frank in that $30 freaking coffin, and she wore that damn hat she made. I don't understand why he didn't just run when he started to get sick. Right? I mean, he's a dude. He's, at this time, allowed to just piece off. Right? I... 
The coroner listed bronchial pneumonia as Frank's cause of death. And once again, totally collected on his life insurance. This time it was only $675, which is like $18,089. Oh, well. Now, it seemed Tilly had lousy luck with men, and she was uh, sort of a legend of her time in Little Poland, known equally for her cooking, premonitions, and subsequent widowhood. It was pretty surprising when she found a fourth man willing to marry her ass. This marriage, though, would would finally be her downfall. Tilly celebrated her fourth wedding on July 30th, 1921, to a wealthy man. Guess what this wealthy man's first name was? Oh, I'm going to go with Joseph. Yep. Joseph Klimek. Although he was a man. Wait, wasn't that the last name of the last guy? No, it was Kupchek. Oh, yeah. Sorry. It's Polish. It's a lot of Polish. So even though he was a man of means, uh, Tilly claimed he enjoyed moonshine too much and too often for her tastes. More than that, he had a roving eye and Tilly could not tolerate competition. She would complain about this to her cousin Nellie Kulik, who suggested Tilly get a divorce. I will get rid of him some other way, Tilly replied. So Tilly and her new husband take out a life insurance policy. Weeks pass and Joseph realized he was getting sick. He experienced shooting pains in his arms, which he dismissed quickly enough, but then his arms began to go numb. And after six weeks, his legs were fucking paralyzed. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that was quick. So Joseph called Dr. Burns to come examine him at his home. That's when we called the doctor? Right. Uh, okay. Yeah, just one oh, paralyzed maybe now because, you know, guys are stubborn like that. Dr. Burns <laughs> is like, uh, you are gravely ill. You are going to get into this ambulance and you are going to go to Cook County Hospital. And the doc- Seems reasonable. Right. Finally. Uh, the doctor saw that his symptoms were consistent with arsenic poisoning. And wouldn't you know it? Test confirmed the man was suffering the effects of long-term arsenic toxicity. That sucks. Joseph then, just another warning, Joseph recalled that their dog keeled over dead after eating a scrap of food from Tilly. Also, the soup she gave him tasted strange. Like, I... If it tastes strange... How... did nobody know? I don't get it. I mean, she was legendary. Seriously, for, for death. I um. Yeah. I, mm. On October twenty uh, seventh, nineteen twenty two, hospital officials called the police, who then promptly arrested Tilly's ass. She quipped at Officer Lieutenant Willard Malone as he placed her under arrest. The next one I want to cook dinner for is you. You made all of my troubles. And after 18 hours oh. of interrogation, she confessed. When they asked It took her, that long? I'm surprised. Right? <laughs> when they asked her where she got the poison, Tilly admitted she got it from her cousin Nellie Kolfick. And Oh. Yeah. And then uh or Kolik, that's it. I uh, did not see that twist. Yeah, it was a compound of soot and arsenic called rough on rats and it was useful Uh, i know a lot about rough on rats it comes up very frequently (laughs) 
And it was useful for getting rid of all manner of vernon, including cumbersome husbands. Yes. Investigators. It is my favorite name of <laughs> the uh, Victorian pesticide. Yeah, it's a pretty good Varieties. One. Rough on rats. No. So, investigators obtained permission to exhume the corpses of Tilly's dead husbands, as well as Nellie's first husband, and all of them had lethal quantities of arsenic in their bodies. Ah, so Nellie started this? Yep. Investigators then learned that Nellie's twin children, Sophie and Ben Sturmer, as well as her granddaughter, Dorothy, all died of poisoning in 1917. Nellie's son, John, and daughter Lillian recovered from arsenic poisoning that same year. So Nellie's even worse. So Tilly and Nellie stood trial before Judge Marcus Tavanaugh, who was a great fan of the death penalty. If Tilly was afraid, she did not show it. Throughout the entire trial, Tilly wore that same black hat that she knitted as her husband Frank died and wore to his funeral. Well, at least she was staying with her mourning. I guess. I don't know. I think she was actually, I think she was just real ballsy. Um, or yeah, just well, real done. Maybe. Well, I mean, it also would have been inappropriate for her to wear anything else. True. So. Uh, prosecutors hmm. read a list of 20 names long, pausing after each name to ask, did you kill this person? To which Tilly shrugged and answered, Yeah. Nellie spent a year behind bars with her cousin, who would relentlessly torment her, saying, Oh, they're going to hang you today, Nellie. Tilly whispered in Polish. What an asshole. Right? She was a total dick. Tilly whispered in Polish as guards removed her from her cell, causing poor Nellie to scream in terror. What she said, I don't know. In actuality, Nellie's trial ended in a hung jury, followed by an acquittal. Tilly did not receive an acquittal, although evidence existed to convict her of 20 murders by arsenic, only one charge resulted in a conviction. In March of 1923, Tilly was found guilty in the first degree murder of Frank Kupchik. Well, T- she only needed one. <laughs> Tilly, right. Tilly appeared underwhelmed as the verdict was read. She only remarked, it was hot in there, as the guards led her back to the prison. Judge, <laughs> Judge, Judge Kavanaugh sentenced Tilly to life huh. without the possibility of parole, which was the harshest sentence ever dealt to a woman in Chicago at that point. Tilly lived out her years in the Illinois State Penitentiary at Joliet, where she died on November 3rd, 1936, at 60 years old. The entire time, they refused to allow her to cook. <laughs> uh, good. You're right. I mean, I and, feel like uh, rough on rats would be be pretty readily available in a prison. Right. <sighs> so that is the mini trip down the lane of Tilly, the Black Widow. And just two examples of Black oh. Widows of Victorian times. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a small section. Um, I trust that they're the sensationalized version I have a feeling that there's probably instances where like it stemmed from instances of women being trapped in really horrible marriages where yeah. you couldn't get a divorce you and didn't have a way out I'm guessing much like there was 
a whole period of time with underground abortions. I have a feeling that this was the underground, began as an underground how to get out of a really crappy marriage when you have no other choice. Yeah, when you can't work and right. can't yeah. inherit yeah. Um, in your own right, right unless you're widowed. No yeah. education, no skill set, no... You know, and no one's going to arrest your husband for beating the shit out of you because you're his property. No one's going to help you get out of that. So I have a feeling that's where the true origin of Black Widows come from. And those are the ones that I'm kind of like, you know what? You had to do what you had to do. Um, But these ones have a bigger body count. Um, And, uh, yeah. I mean, these were just extravagant. Oh, yeah. Like, (laughs) a, a wealth of death. She right. was lousy with death. I I uh, I went with Tilly over uh, the other one that I was going to go with because the whole psychic factor just combined with the fact that the little Poland where she clearly lured in all of her men is it was a small, tight-knit community. So how she managed to rack up four marriages like that and then just her... Freaking yeah! I mean, I did it's it. fucking ballsy. <laughs> the whole psychic thing. Her th- and her thirty dollar coffin and freaking knitting her hat while <laughs> just she was. Uh, she was I a mean, piece of work. I could see the argument that you needed to be prepared. Right? Like if it was clear that it was going in a certain way, but but that's pretty just. There's Tilly had some. That's brazen. Yeah, she had some giant cast iron balls, uh, and she just whipped them out. She was pretty yeah. too. I'll pop up a picture. Was she? There's, there's some pictures where she looks. You know, she's Polish, has the strong jawline, but mm-hmm. there's one photo of her where she is super pretty. She's got a hat on. She had very bright eyes. Um, I will uh, pop it in the graphics folder so we can use it, but. So right, I can I'm see looking her allure, for the but at photo. The same, oh, yeah, yeah. I've looked at her before. But at the same time, it's like, dude, again, like, how is dating harder now? <laughs> like, I've not killed anyone. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm really glad to hear that. You know, that, <laughs> just, that I'm aware of. Uh, but yeah, like, I just, the fact oh, that... These, I, well, these women just racked up the men like I I don't recommend life insurance um as a as a career um in the terms no, of receiving No, I'm of it. guessing though that how they did it was sex. I yeah, assume. I guess. Here's I what I mean sex and the values of the time. Where now, if you're in a small community and they know you're shacking up with somebody, like... This is how I would have done it. Oh! I would have I would have been the first email insur- life insurance seller. Bro- and um, I would have reached broker. out to all of the women stuck. I would have been the underground, oh, your husband beats you? Let me tell you a little story. This is how you do. He comes to me, I give him a life insurance policy... You give them a little arsenic over time, bada bing, bada boom. I'd have helped him. And then that's how I would have made my money. It would have been fine. 
All right. I don't I don't think you would have been allowed to issue insurance. Probably not. I'd have fought that. I'd have been super Yeah, I would not have fared well. <laughs> no. No. Well, I mean I'd have been burnt I as just... a witch. <laughs> and like that's it. Yes. Well, not at that time, but stone tongue I would not yeah. have had four men. <laughs> I feel like I might have (laughs) (laughs) um i don't follow rules very well i don't i i don't like to be told what i can and cannot do no it makes me real feisty i believe um there would have been laws written because of me yep (laughs) can i think that we would have broken many together oh yes (laughs) oh yes yep Good time. Yeah. I mean, I could see uh, setting myself up in some pretty solid drag so I could sell the insurance. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Anyway, let's. Uh, I would. I would constantly we, play the grieving widow in your in your in your waiting room so people knew that you were legit. I'd be like, <gasps> I love it. <laughs> um, also, we're not gonna kill anybody. No, not today. No, no. Just to be clear. Yes. That creates a lot of paperwork. It really does. It requires a lot of effort. Yep. Which is why (laughs) probably your general woman of the world is not interested in killing you. Right. Because you are not worth the trouble. Seriously. Like, there's days I don't want to do the dishes, let alone, like, clean up a crime scene and get rid of a body. Come on. That's so much work. So much work. And, yeah, no. Let's, I mean, maybe if you lived in Florida and could just throw somebody in the Everglades. True. But But also a pandemic. Like, you know. Yeah, you, that that's risky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I don't understand how either of these women managed to acquire that many uh, love interests. Also, um, I have two children, and I am mm-hmm. tired all of the damn time. I can't imagine having nine and still carrying this nonsense out. Like, where, where? Where did she get the energy? Well, it's kind of hard. I assume that both of these women were lower middle class-ish, or... They grew, both grew up in working families. I mean, yeah, and, like, married, sometimes married up a bit. Still, that's a lot of kids. I mean, I guess at some point, the you can just make the older ones take care of the younger ones. Right, but you're always pregnant. Ew. Like, that takes a toll on your body. Mine are... Not if you're 19. Mine are 15 months apart. (laughs) That was rough. (laughs) Like, I can't imagine... All right, fine. Yeah, I'm just saying, there's so many things that... There was a small part of me that was like, damn, you had all that energy to do and manage to pull all it. Okay, but not the kids. Like when there's they were not doom involved. scrolling on Twitter. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> if she had just taken up a podcast, she'd have been fine. 
nice little outlet for it's her. true <laughs> oh my gosh i i would be prepared to be utterly fascinated specifically by tilly because i'm fairly certain she um and obviously i'm not diagnosing anything nor am i an expert but I, I think it's relatively clear that she might fall on the psychopath spectrum. Seriously. Uh, definitely. Uh, so I'm fairly certain that some really interesting things would come out of her mouth. Yeah. Like, more interesting than come out of my autistic mouth. I'm going to have to Google Earth and see if that building's still there she lived in. Well, field mm. trip. Be like, hey. Uh, well, I'm actually looking at <laughs> the. Like, I'm, um, one step ahead. <laughs> I'm looking at a uh, street screen image um, from a YouTube video. Oh, that okay. I'm guessing is probably <laughs> where it was, and it looks like old row houses. That sounds right. I should mention that there's a uh, British. TV show based on Marianne that came out fairly recently, and I'll put that information in the show notes. If hmm. but there's a lot about Marianne. She's a pretty, pretty popular case, I guess, for lack of a better term. Um, but uh, Tilly, uh, I mean, Tilly's definitely uh, interesting. Yeah, I I feel like women who kill at this time in history, in particular, are fascinating because there could be really sincerely defendable reasons yes. for it but also the history is at the time recorded by men true and so you might there might have been an entirely different thing happening right and you would never know right I just I think it's really fascinating because you can see how like you could look at a woman and be like wow you, you are a murderous villain you're very right. dangerous or you could look at someone and be like wow you had no other way out mm-hmm. and I, and those people could be the same people, depending right. on who's telling the story. Right. And, like Lucretia. Yeah. For a long time, it was documented that she killed her husbands and her political rivals. But then as they went into it and actually researched further, they're like, no, she was just a scapegoat. But, you know, the, the Borgia family is, I mean, that we're talking royalty and a huge, 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 huge leaps and above. Yeah. Where these women were station-wise, their station in life, nobody's going to take the effort, even though it's sensationalized. And, well, you know, and everybody loves the whole... you pick one. Right. You pick one who's lived to adulthood mm-hmm. and, it, like, blame everything on them. I can see how, like, you would just have one that needed to be locked in the tower. And with Marianne, her kids may have legitimately died. Like, yeah. those nine kids may have legitimately died, and that will drive a woman. I can't imagine. That would drive a mother nuts. Yeah. I mean, I mean the death rate it. is so high for children that all of, unless it was proven that they were poisoned, any of those kids just might not have made it. Right. 
I mean, there wasn't penicillin yet. Right. And uh, there was not postpartum depression. I mean, there's so many things that were yeah. undiagnosed. And, and I mean, there's postpartum psychosis. Right. I think I'm not. I, I don't know much about this area, so I will tread lightly. But, like, there are a lot of... There's a lot of stuff that could be going on that we would immediately recognize as something that could be dealt with. Right. Kids pregnant, even now, everybody's like, oh, being pregnant is wonderful. And, oh, you forget the pain. Fuck that. It does Pregnancy. not sound wonderful to me. Yeah, it's beautiful and you get a kid out of it, but it is rough. It is not it is not a walk in the park. And I almost like I had like a stupid traumatic birth with my eldest. Yep. Wherein I like went into shock, they lost a sponge, it's a whole thing. Oh gosh. But people don't t- we're not just like we don't talk about periods. We don't talk about oh you can I had some woman not long after I had my eldest, I described it as the most amazing and most traumatic day of my life because it yeah. was. And she cussed me out for referring to it as traumatic. And I was like, uh, don't trauma shame me. Like, she was ridiculously traumatic. But I did it again. I, it didn't, you know, I mean, I had another child and I would do it all over 10 times over to well, have my eldest. Yeah. But seriously. There's a lot of shit in I mean, there that people don't talk having about. Having there be trauma does not mean that you don't love the kid. Right. I mean, I I am not personally inclined in that direction. Um, I, I think that I would find... I think I might be the opposite. I think I might find all of the things that were happening internally to be fascinating oh, and then be like I will. I would like to nope right on out of this once there was a, a screaming being. It is super fascinating but it's also like I did I did not know and I was a pretty smart person. I even took women's biology. Yeah. I didn't know how your your hips physically Ooh. separate. And yeah, weird, there are like, joints there. Yeah, you don't like, and just because your body was quote made to do that, doesn't mean it's made to do it easily, or that everybody's body reacts the right way or does the right thing, or like it just. Yeah. I yeah. mean, if you are very young, uh, yeah, I mean, it tends to go better not that i'm saying that uh you should go out and have uh all the teenage pregnancies i'm just saying your body your body may be ready to handle it then but emotionally you're still a kid you are (laughs) for sure not ready there's um women are just screwed in that aspect by the time you're emotionally probably old enough to have it then your body's starting to be like not so much but yeah i mean and that is fascinating because like you have 15 16 17 year olds getting married like as a normal thing mm-hmm. and right. uh, at the time period and like all of the sudden they are the head well they are not the head of a household but the domestic head right. of a of a household and they're expected to be grown-ups now my kids fall over a box of macaroni and cheese the other day. And they're yeah. both of Mary, Victorian marrying age at this point. Like, I can't. I cannot. 
Nope. No. Uh, and I just, I find that to be really fascinating. I mean, I guess that circumstances would be as such that you would grow up much faster. Right. I mean, this is a time when children, like children, children, worked in workhouses and in factories. Right. Like, we're talking five-year-olds. Which like, is, it's there true. There were four-year-olds in tailor shops. But your brain wasn't sewing. developing any quicker. Like, your life I, experience I was there, but it's not like your frontal lobe was kicking in quicker. Oh, certainly not. Um, but... I think you're just mimicking what you're supposed to do at that point. It's the, it's the ultimate fake it until you make it at that point, I think. Yeah, I mean, life expectancy was shorter. I would really be interested to know, um, like, chemically yeah. what is happening um, and what timeline it's happening on. Yes, I agree. Totally. Because, I mean, we grew up with people talking about um, chemicals making the onset of women's periods happen way, way younger. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the only thing we're looking at is like 1945 to 1980. Yeah. Because these were children having children often. Yeah. Babies having babies. I don't babies. know. I. Like, it sort of blows my mind that it would be totally normal for, like, you and your mom to both have a baby. Yeah. <laughs> so weird. No. Uh, but, yeah. I, anyway. That, yeah. I. Uh, so. so now you see why the psychology of it was, was like, that it, every, it's case by case. I think yep. you would have to sit down and definitely look case by case as to these people. The answer is yes, and, maybe, and, no, but. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and I mean, some some women were just homicidal. Right. Like, I kind of want to see what her pattern exist. was for the, you know, the hat she knit for the funeral. I mean, that's the ultimate the f- ballsy morning wear. Ah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think she's wearing it. She must be wearing it in those photos. Oh, yeah. In the early photos. Um, I don't know. So morning uh, I like wears also Tilly for the is wearing like a, um, like a, a men's hat. Right. With crepe around the band. That's she, interesting. Yeah, she looks. Although it may well have been a, a normal women's style at the time. Hmm. I, I think that that is the case. Um because I think that we, uh, there is a girl gang from about the same time that uh, dressed in men's clothing and got up to no good. Uh, and they aren't wearing these. They're wearing like very different kinds of And those would be our besties. <laughs> oh yeah, we're, we're going to have to what are they? The Teddy Girls? I think that's yeah. what they're called. Um, and I think they're a little bit later than this. I think they might be 1920s. But um, anyway, they're awesome. And probably also deeply um, into crime. 
Yeah. Now that we've talked about Black Widows, yes. it seems appropriate to go through actual morning practices, attire, and timeline, like what would have been expected mm-hmm. at during the time, because those women weren't necessarily doing the thing that would be expected. Right. Um, or that would even be appropriate, although the um, closer to working class you get, the more appropriate it becomes to remarry immediately, although that does not absolve you from wearing mourning. So, it... it what would morning's that morning wedding dress look like? Oh, there there are lots of half-morning wedding dresses. There's a really cool one uh, that... Uh, there's a video that I'm going to link to in an article from the Met show Death Becomes Her. Um, the Met Ooh. being the Metropolitan yeah. Museum of Art. Um and there's a lecture that is linked oh, nice. uh, in one of their curators and a woman who wore a half-mourning wedding dress uh, after the Civil War. Ooh, was, I'll check that out. Was shown, and the whole dress is shown. And oh, nice. it's really interesting, and they talk about why she would have done that. And she didn't happen to have lost someone close to her, but it was out of respect for all of the people around her who had. Oh, wow. That's um, huge. Then. Yeah. So, but there are there are rules, man. There are lots of rules. Yeah, I would not have done no. well. Uh, I I would have existed just fine in this because it would take away things I had to worry about. Specific structure, don't have to, I would know what to do socially. Makes sense. And I would forget. Yeah. There's so many rules. Oh, I would have to have them written down. forget because would you would have a whole sheet. wardrobe. Oh, gosh. <laughs> All right. So wow. let's actually jump into it. Um <laughs> So, mourning itself, obviously, has existed as long as people have existed. And each culture has different customs and traditions for grieving a lost loved one, or head of state, or whatever you might be grieving at any given moment. Um, But since covering global mourning customs throughout human time and space, would require literal volumes of books. I'm going to focus on some of the most well-known years to modern history geeks, um, which would be the 19th century. So, yes, kids, we're talking Victorian morning. Specifically, Victorian era mourning in England and the U.S. as practiced by the upper and middle classes, because that is what you're thinking of when you're thinking of mourning. 
um, that simply was out of reach often, financially especially, of people who were not wealthy. So let's uh, keep that in mind as we're going through the customs that we are definitely talking about people who had money to spend. All right, so uh, brace yourselves because there will be some poisonous veils, some widow's weeds, and men getting off real easy uh, Mm. because women were expected to toe the moral and emotional line at home and men did mostly whatever they wanted to, which is true throughout most of history. <laughs> so, yep, I was going to say that's a real familiar concept. Yep, and so women were the sort of visual, both status symbol and symbol of morality for a family at this time. All right, so. Morning stages and rules are fucking complicated. So let's use our Curiosity Shop's resident skeleton, Great Aunt Francis, who is, <laughs> I, I have rolled over yes. to be standing directly behind me, although she's like pelvis height to face because <laughs> I am nothing if not awkward. Uh, yeah, so. So that is happening, and she's also way taller than me, so I don't know. She has a very lovely scarf on. Yeah, yes. Uh, there is also, she's wearing a skeleton cameo brooch. Yes, and the scarf is green. Imagine that. Shocking. <laughs> um, yes. So I'm going to use Great Aunt Frances as, like, the personification of the of a woman as she's going through these stages because it's a lot easier to attach it to a person than just think of it as an idea. Yes. Um, so, Great Aunt Frances, alas, will have tragedy befalling her at every turn. But as we would expect here in the Curiosity Shop, she will carry on with dignity, decorum, and probably most importantly, chastity, because patriarchy. But also some good drugs, because Victorian times. <laughs> oh, that's true. They, drugs did not come up in my research for this because I specifically stuck with the clothing and textiles and those specifics because there are rules around funerals. There are rules around invitations to funerals. That's a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, There are rules uh, about when you are allowed to call at someone's home who has just lost someone of, of a certain closeness. There's like, rules for freaking everything. Yeah, it, it's it's a real mess. So I uh, am just talking about mourning as you would know it as mourning attire or widow's weeds. So we're going to start with stage one 
which has several names, because why not? <laughs> um, it's known as deep morning or full morning or first morning. And sometimes what you call it will change depending on who it is your morning. Okay. Like how close they were to you. Like deep morning and full morning is definitely a close family member, but you might call it first morning for someone who isn't. Um, so Francis. As a young, reasonably wealthy widow in 1890, could expect her mourning process to go on for at least two and a half years, or for the rest of her life. It is sort of up to her, and also her pocketbook. Um, but during these two and a half years, we're talking about putting your entire life and everything about it on hold. So oh, okay. This is So it ain't just about the clothing. No. Um so deep mourning or first mourning, which traditionally lasted for a year and a day, um during that time Francis would be expected to adhere to the following rules of fashion. So, every item of clothing must be sewn with a matte, unreflective black cloth, which meant, at the time, heavy dyed paramata silk, bombazine, and wools. And the cuffs and collars would be made of crepe or muslin. And these dresses in theory, should be simple with no ornamentation, embroidery, or fabrics with any element of shine to them. So no, like, ribbons or anything like that. And they were often accompanied with a, by a heavy black cloak, regardless of time of year. Oof. Yeah. That's heavy and warm. Oh, you were just beginning the heavy and warm. Oh. So, <laughs> bows, ruffles, and flounces were not allowed, and absolutely no jewelry should be worn during deep mourning. Uh, if they were necessary, buckles and fastenings could be used, but they must be made of jet. So, okay. that's fun, and we'll take a deeper dive into that in our Patreon episode for yes. uh, next week. So... A black crepe mourning bonnet with a full-length mourning veil would also have been required attire for whenever a new widow went out in public so she could weep with dignity, you know, oh, like... I often, like often wish I could weep with dignity. <laughs> yeah, me too, man. Um, <laughs> but... Because we're talking about very thick, heavy fabric, she couldn't really see very well or breathe very well. Oh, gosh. And this is a year and a half of every time you go outside. So that's oh, fun. 
um, and there's a very specific bonnet that needs to be worn, and all of this is very heavy and very uncomfortable and kind of structured. Are there rules on how you pass out from heat exhaustion? Uh, probably. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, grief also might not be why our dear Frances would be tearing up. She also might be weeping because said veil was filled with dyes and chemicals from the production process, including our old favorite arsenic, uh, which was sometimes used in the process of delustering fabric. So, It'll deluster some stuff. It sure will. But uh, there are also many other poisonous chemicals or substances that could be involved in the production of crepe specifically and they could cause rashes breathing problems or blindness and also you know death because that's fun and sensible for a young widow um I am fairly certain that I personally would have immediately turned into one giant hive and <laughs> would have taken to my bed for the rest, for the next couple of years. Yeah. But I've also had scarlet fever yep. many, many times, so let's be honest, I wouldn't be alive. Also, I was Man. born two months early, so there are lots of reasons that I would not be living. Um Yes, and my birthday is tomorrow, so yes, yay, for, yay for living. Um, all right, so in addition to what she's already got on, Frances would also wear black gloves and carry a handkerchief with a wide black band. And this band on the handkerchief would grow narrower as the stages of mourning progressed. And this clothing would be made by Frances's dressmaker, or if she was feeling especially modern, purchased in newly established stores that were selling ready-to-wear morning clothing. Because a widow would spend, like I said, two and a half years of her life living in some variety of mourning. So she would need a Full new wardrobe, wow. often without warning, with outfits appropriate for every occasion and season. And when out of deep mourning, there would be balls or weddings to attend, like a lot of things that she would be expected yeah. to do, and she would need to have both. Uh, practically appropriate and societally appropriate garments. So Especially mourning, higher up the financial yeah. chain she was. Yeah, and so mourning wasn't just a black dress and done. Mourning was a huge financial investment. And every and, goth girl's dream. I mean, <laughs> let's be honest, we all had it. Um, yeah. Wear a lot of black, but not that much. <laughs> I, I wore that much. <clears throat> yes, lots of very uncomfortable headwear <laughs> and footwear. 
That's a very tall footwear. Yes. Stacked. Yeah. I was almost as tall as everybody else. (laughs) All right. So. Hold on. I have lost my place. Per usual. Are we shocked? It's the first time this episode. It is. All right. So, like I said, a full wardrobe with outfits for all occasions would be required as a widow who had just lost one's husband. And being able to afford this entirely new wardrobe was in and of itself a status symbol, and it could and would signify both social class and fashion sense to the outside world. And so it was really big business, and it was something that people, especially in classes below the very wealthy, aspired to. Like, being able to have morning attire or to wear it was an aspirational thing. Yeah, that's right. Fucking Victorians. Well, I mean, everybody was dying, so. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. All right. So, it should be noted that even with rules of propriety in place, the upper classes didn't necessarily follow them. They were likely to follow the current trends in fashion, even in deep mourning. So adding decorative hems, crepe flowers, detailed edging. Um, Basically, you would see in fashion plates and advertisements for the most high-end dressmakers a costume in happy colors of the season and the same exact thing in morning. Um, so interesting. Is you think of you think of the more wealthy as having to be more proper and uphold their reputation. So having them be the ones to kind of score. Well when you get rich enough I suppose. (laughs) Well it's it's one of those things that Depending on how respectable your family was and how much leeway there might be um, in your family's respectability, you might be able to bend the rules a little bit more. Or if you were so obscenely wealthy that nobody else could say anything, well, nobody was going to say anything. And it should be noted that mourning became more fashionable as the Victorian era wore on. And so... the longer, I would imagine, that the Queen more... You know what I mean? Well, I mean, that's why it became fashionable, because Queen Victoria mourned for the rest of her life. Yep. Um, And was definitely wearing stages of half-mourning in almost every photo I've seen of her. So, that that we will get to. Um... (laughs) So, yeah. So the rich people were basically following fashion trends, especially in, like, the late 1890s. And 
it wasn't it wasn't unusual and people sort of pretended that they weren't doing it um these people were obviously disrespectful and going straight to hell or straight back to the drawing room for more society gossip which was probably (laughs) more likely um so yeah and i mean also keep in mind that when you think of widow you often an older person comes to mind Mm -hmm. many many of the people we're talking about are young women so it would make sense that fashion would be a high priority so anyway it's also how you showed your status so you would take a little bit of a risk to look like you were higher up in your station i would think if you yeah and sometimes that would backfire yeah yeah so once you got through the landmine that was deep morning or full morning or first morning which also just to make it even more confusing could also refer to the stages of that stage of morning so you could start out in deep morning and go to full morning and eventually wander down to first morning but it would Oof. still be all the same thing <laughs> <laughs> um except i maybe you might get a little looser with the fashion um, I, I would definitely need a flow chart or a cheat card uh yeah and so we'll just keep it simple and we'll call that full morning like all of those rules are full morning and you would enter stage two or stage god knows what four i guess (laughs) um but stage round recognized in current literature of the day this was the next stage of morning. It was stage two, second morning, or ordinary morning. So it could be called either of those, and that would also depend on certain things, um, especially who the person you are mourning was to you. So, Is it wrong that every time you say second morning, I think of, like, second breakfast and feel like a hobbit? What? Every time you say, like, second morning, oh I, think, I think of, like, second breakfast and I feel like a hobbit. Like, I feel like there's as many stages of mornings as hobbits have of meals. That is correct. I think that is a perfect analogy right there. And I wish I'd thought about it because then I would have just gone full Tolkien on it. Anyway. I love a good full Tolkien. <laughs> This one even go full talk. <laughs> Never mind. Let's let's not let's not. Morning is already confusing enough. We do not need to bring all the writings of Tolkien into <laughs> a, a, and the maps and oh god. And the ma- oh the maps. Yeah. Okay. So second morning or ordinary morning. Assuming that Francis came through that first year of wearing a poisonous veil relatively unscathed, 
Um, she would now finally get to move on to nine months to a year of second mourning. Mm. Yes. So, at this time, Francis's dressmaker would be able to reduce the amount of crepe involved in the dresses and could maybe add matte silk or delaine, which is a, a fabric that I wasn't familiar with, but it's um, either fine wool or a mixture of wool and cotton. Okay. And, um, but it's it's lighter than what... I was like, going to say, it sounds lighter and cotton means it would be a little bit more breathable. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think, more along the lines of, like, I have running shirts that are made of of that, like, short sleeve running mm-hmm. shirts because they're breathable. Um, yes. So that would be, that would be a little bit nice. Um, so then um, also you could use bombazine, uh, which could be silk or a combination of silk and wool. It was a heavy fabric. And you could add maybe a matte black silk dress into the mix. Maybe. Maybe. Does silk and wool play well together? Like in a combined fiber? Uh, yes. Because they are both natural Natural. fibers. They take dye differently. I was going to say, they're very different. I mean, but they are animal fibers, both of them. And so they actually both, um, well, it dying is very complicated also um <laughs> and i will go into all the chemistry about that in Yay, our patreon episode as well but suffice it just it strikes to me say that um, silk and wool took dye more easily than say cotton yeah all right so also her dressmaker could maybe add in a broad matte black ribbon or <gasps> crepe trimmings. And her veil would be much shorter and made of uh, either black net or a lighter tull. And presumably that would be less deadly also. <laughs> so I was say. that, that would be great. Yes, and as second morning progressed, and it would be second morning if we're talking about um, a widow, not ordinary morning, probably. Um, But as that nine months to a year progressed, it also might be appropriate for Francis to add a touch of white to the black so maybe at the collar or cuffs she also might add a few pieces of jet jewelry into the mix along with pearls okay which 
would symbolize like tears or innocence or any number of things that you might think of because the Victorians didn't stick to one plan. They had many. Um, I think Pearl was also used for babies as well. In jewelry. Yes. Uh, Although I think that was slightly later. Okay. But I could be completely wrong since I focused largely on adults because children are a different story. Tears and virtue were the major uses of pearl. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Because you've already covered this. So, you know, Mm -hmm. never mind. I'll shut up. You're exactly right. (laughs) Um, So... At this time, also, ball gowns and evening wear would also become appropriate and would be incorporated into the wardrobe as more social outings were permitted. So, things are becoming slightly less isolated, although we're still talking about... Uh, I I think that when people think of that time period, they assume the colors are not vibrant because the fixative for the dyes was maybe not fast or or things that we have now have faded. Right. But we are talking a sort of a rich, deep, black clothed highly pigmented uh in a sea of like pastels (laughs) (laughs) yes yes and arsenic green oh so much so much arsenic (laughs) um yeah there's a lot you could get into a lot of arsenic wall to wall i i'm actually not sure if the veil would protect you more from arsenic or poison you more like if the veil itself was more poisonous or if the air would be at a ball but i guess you wouldn't be wearing the veil at a ball so it doesn't matter um that'd be definite passing out yeah right (laughs) a lot all right so now that francis can attend certain social gatherings appropriately though in in a subdued fashion as she comes to an end and is incorporating more of that into her day-to-day life she will then move into the last stage of mourning which could last for a minimum of six months, but also might last for the rest of your life. And this is where Queen Victoria stopped also. Gotcha. All right. So in half mourning, you could ditch the heavy crinkly crepe. Bye, crepe. Yes. Um, and Francis's hives can finally retreat. <laughs> And slightly lustrous fabric or even a watered silk might be introduced. Um, 
there are actually photos of Queen Victoria wearing what is probably a watered silk, although it's hard to tell given there was not color photography. Yes. But, um, uh, so, also embroidery, ribbons, beading, and black lace could be brought into play um, in the earlier stages of half mourning because, heaven forbid, it just be straightforward. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you get texture during this part. Yeah. And so more intricate jet or hair jewelry, pearls, and white gemstone accessories could also be introduced as appropriate. So as you moved through the six months, like you couldn't jump right into it, but you could ease your way in. You could stick a toe in. Um, (laughs) And as time progressed, Francis could also say hello to dresses with subtle white stripes. Um, And gray or... There are so many ways to pronounce this word. Let's go with mauve, um, because that's how the Met pronounces it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, and shades of violet might be introduced back into her wardrobe and therefore adding a little bit of color back into her life and signaling that she is nearing the end of this half morning period although she may choose never to end it and stop right there which gotcha. was a perfectly appropriate choice um i spent that much money on that clothing i probably would just right <laughs> keep rocking it yeah so going to take a moment because obviously this is a creepy and crafty podcast to just walk you through how crepe the fabric was made. Please do. All right, so start with plain undyed gauze that was woven with twisted threads. Okay. Because crepe, as, well, I'm sure that we know, but the listener may not know, is permanently crinkled matte cloth and like it's definitely yeah and it's definitely what you think of when you're thinking of a like elephant skin yeah except scratchier (laughs) yeah i guess i don't know no that's not true i have touched an elephant but um i don't you're not making pjs out of it no Although maybe an umbrella stand during this time period uh, out of a foot. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Anyway. (laughs) So that fabric would then be passed through heated metal rollers. And one of which would have an engraved texture on the surface which would impress that texture onto the fabric. And then it would be soaked 
in a hot bath, which would relax the fibers slightly, which would make the crinkled texture more apparent. Mm. And so, <coughs> after the, uh, the fabric was now very crinkly, uh, it would be dyed black and then starched to a dull luster. Luster? Lusper. Wow. I can uh, definitely tell. and starch. Yes. So starch to a dull luster, and that would also add the expected structure to the fabric, like the visual structure. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, I will take a deep dive into a vat of black dye in our Patreon episode, so I'm not going to talk about the chemical dyeing process right now. Because it's a whole thing. Um, so suffice it to say that crepe was time intensive to create and very expensive. And eventually... So itchy and unattractive. Like I <laughs> Well, that was rather the point. You weren't supposed to be yeah. a comfortable, attractive widow. I suppose. Yeah. Oh, I just don't like to pay extra for discomfort. <laughs> Well, welcome to being a woman in Victorian (laughs) England or the United States. So eventually, um, as the during the close of the 19th century, um, a cheaper option would come to the market called crepe cloth, which would be fabric with a crepe-like texture woven directly into the pattern during manufacturing. And so now, let's have a little fun fact. Since crepe was basically fabric that was damaged by heat, starch, glue, or the dyeing process, it could be made using waste silk. Um, So fabric that otherwise wouldn't have been used. And okay, that you could get down with then. Right, but it also meant turning formerly unusable fabric into cash. So it was an interesting... There was an interesting line between preying upon the bereaved yeah. and just giving the people what they wanted. So Kind of like our modern wedding... Oh my gosh. Industry. <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. And for an additional fun fact, the name Widow's Weeds, which refers to this particular tradition in morning attire, you might see these dresses referred to as wearing widow's weeds, um, mm-hmm. makes a lot more sense when you actually know the etymology of the word. So they're not talking about things you would like to pull out of your garden, although that is what I thought when I started researching it, and I thought it was like, you know, because widows were the excess. They were women in want of men. Um, Mm -hmm. And therefore, things you would want to weed out. But that was not the case. Um, Weeds actually comes from the old English word, 
WAD, which I looked up the pronunciation for, <laughs> and that is correct, um, but accent and such would eventually take it to weed. Um, and that word meant cloth, like garment. Ah, okay. Um, and the etymology would continue to go wandering through more fun Germanic pronunciations and then to Old Norse and possibly to Lithuanian. Although I, okay. I, I couldn't really follow that particular <laughs> jump. Um, but we'll stop at Old English for now. So, weeds mean garment gotcha all right so all right i'm done with fun facts now we're going to get mad at men okay can i ask a question first uh-huh so is it like Candyland? like if she loses a if she's in like full morning and she's about to get out of full morning or maybe she's in the second or third morning process but then loses a child does she have to go back to the first stage again and then go all the way through it yes um, but there are different time periods. It's a complicated answer, and I will awesome. answer it mostly um, in the section that I'm talking about next. And is there morning beachwear? No, but there okay. wouldn't have. I mean, swimming costumes at the time were basically wool dresses, weren't they? That's true. So Those are my two questions. Um, That's it. I mean, I guess I can't say definitively no, but since women weren't doing a lot of swimming swimming anyway, right. and they certainly weren't showing skin, right? I, I think you might just be able to wear your wool morning in the water if you felt really inclined you could be out there picking seaweed you probably were in so, fact i was gonna say yeah that would be a nice hobby well and your husband's dead so you can have his boots um true <laughs> if that joke doesn't make sense to you you may want to <laughs> go back to uh one of our botanical episodes um anyway so let's talk about mourning for women versus mourning for men. Mm. You may have noticed that I've been talking about widows this whole time. Yes. And nobody else has come up. Well, that's because mourning for men lasted three months to a year for a spouse and generally only required the addition of a crepe band around his hat or arm. And if he were particularly observant, black neckwear and black gloves and pearl cuff studs set in jet might be added to his like already regularly worn daily black suit. Um, oh, hell no. Yeah. Hmm. But, and this is my favorite part, if he was really, really into following the rules of propriety, he would also change his buttons, buckles, and swords 
to <laughs> from silver to jet. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, listeners, do not settle for less than a partner that would change his, their sword for you. Yeah. So, that's love. And, and I mean, we are talking about the upper classes where ceremonial dress, especially in England, might have a sword. Like, right. I mean, fuck patriarchy, full stop. But the sword thing's pretty cool. I mean, can you say no to a sword? No, it's no, you can't. No, for multiple <laughs> reasons. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know how Jet would hold up in a duel. I assume we're talking about just the handle, like the silver handle Possibly. of the sword. But maybe not. I mean, because I think they, many of those handles were brass. They make a lot. They made far more than just jewelry with the jet. Oh, um, yeah. And so, I, so I'm not, I could not confirm whether we were talking about a whole sword made of jet, which maybe. In my jet research, I did, I did not come across swords. And now I'm a little sad and I feel like I failed at my job. You totally did not fail, I promise. Um, because this was just a side note in one of the many, many often conflicting guides from the time. There's uh, a lot of conflicting Oh, stuff. yeah. Like, but none I'm... of this stuff had a true right answer, and <laughs> there were a lot of... There's a lot of room for judgment. <laughs> All right. So, yes, that, that is my favorite part. So if, if your widower switches his uh, buttons, buckles, and swords from silver to jet, you know, you had a good one. Except you're yeah. dead, so it doesn't matter. Right. But hear me out. All if right. If you are a widow in search of a new spouse... I would be looking for a jet black sword. You know what? Me too. Because, like, that, that, that's a good one. That, that's a good one. That's a keeper. Or that's that it. one is very performative. Yeah, <laughs> I true. think it could go either way. <laughs> they're, either, they're either a keeper or totally pompous and all out just for... Yes. I mean, who knows? It, it could go either way. It's a good start. All right. Just saying. So... Assuming that you were just being a normal man, um, your hat band would become narrower. Your crepe hat band would become narrower as morning progressed. And in half morning, the aforementioned extremely <clears throat> proper gentleman... I just, I just can't help it. Um, would be allowed to change their buttons back out. Um, their buttons, buckles, and swords back from jet <laughs> to silver in half morning. So, um, but that could be three months in. So. <laughs> oh, man. Did a tiny little or window to suss out. <laughs> um, I mean, it could be up to a year. 
but it probably wasn't. Unless you're Abraham Lincoln, who never took the crepe off his hat from his son's That is true. So sad. Yes. Yes. Fun fact. Not about (laughs) Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) (laughs) Because the reason we know that is because of his assassination. Um, The widower, or if the widower in question happened to get remarried shortly after the death of his wife because uh men have needs or children i i don't i don't know his new wife would likely go into some variety of mourning out of respect for his widow which seems both kind of nice and also like some serious bullshit right i was thinking the same thing like on one hand i was like oh that's really sweet on the other hand i was like he just had to change his fucking cufflinks but you have to go full you know that yep yeah and i'm not sure i i think that unless she was already mourning for a different reason um half morning or second morning would probably be as far as you would go. I don't think that a wife, unless you were talking about, like, an extremely, like, ostentatiously showy, pious man, who is not really pious, um, Mm, I don't (laughs) think that there would be any reason for you to go into full morning. But he'd be buying the wardrobe. Tell. That's all I'm saying. He'd be right? buying all that. Well, I mean, if you had a dressmaker, it would be made to measure, so it would be less of an ordeal, probably. That's but still crazy pants. It's true. Um, so I kind of like, like, if we're talking about a black jet sword dude, yes. all right, we'll go in to some mourning. Out of respect. If for he's got his kids. Wife. If he's got kids, I fully see it. Yeah, and that and was then, often like that's sort of women could be removed from culture because they weren't expected to go about the business of doing things in yeah. their regular lives, or at least women of the class who would be mm-hmm. doing full mourning. But it was argued that men had to get back to doing what men did, whether it be sitting in parliament or, you know, doing transactions or gambling or whatever. Um, uh, So they couldn't just remove themselves from society for two and a half years. And also, if they had children, those children would need a mother. I would also point out that women of that station wouldn't be doing the mothering. They would have a nanny or a governess. Right, a governess. But whatever. I I think I don't understand how that world works, and that's fine. Same. I mean, I do understand, but I don't understand... how the structure of that truly played out in real life i don't understand what the hell they would do with their time if they had like a governess and like didn't go like i 
full morning. Oh my goodness. But again, that's what they're, if they're well, was, and they're if also paying a, calls. Like true. it's their job to uphold the like in mourning or not, it would be the woman's right. job to uphold the reputation of the family. So they're kind of a business manager in some Basically. Case. And I mean they would yeah. be expected to pay calls on people of certain stations and receive calls and like Drink a lot at of specific frequency. Yeah. Like yeah. It's Okay. We won't so, even get into that. Black sword with kids I'd be down to wear the morning stuff. Yep. Same. That's fine. I can, yeah. Yep. I got you. All right. So that is morning for men. Jesus. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so now we're going to go back to the ladies and back to your question about morning for I, others. I'm seriously irritated that that's all that there is for men. Your horse should have to wear black. Like there should be. Yeah, I get. I that mean, you at can't the funeral, home, that was true. But, but and sh- yeah, I get you can't stay home, but you I should mean, the wear household the household stuff longer. Could go into mourning, which is crepe on the door and mirrors covered right, and say. yeah. So uh, and images like paintings or whatever covered. That could no be happening services. also, but it wouldn't last as long if you weren't a, if you were a widower keeping a household and not a widow. So, Patriarch. yeah. So since women bore the brunt of mourning responsibility, uh, I'm just going to provide a short list of the many additional mourning period guidelines that oh our Francis here would be expected to follow if someone who wasn't her husband happened to die. Or, I mean, like you were wondering, is this a whole Candyland thing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Wow. Um, could be nearing the end and pull the gumdrop card and have to go all the way back. Well, presumably you only have one spouse. So going all the way back would not be the same. So here... So first morning isn't for kids? Oh, there, there is first morning, but you move through it faster. Oh, uh, that's right. All right. So this... These are the um, the timelines that you would be expected to follow for different relationships. So, the death of a parent had a grieving time from six months to a year. Um, if you were doing the year, it would be six months of first mourning, um, and you would be permitted black or white crepe um and three months of ordinary mourning which allowed for black silk and then three months in half mourning which we have already described can mean any number of things yes all right so if if you were going to do that 
for a full year, that's what would happen. If you were doing it for six months, you would half those time periods. You would still go through all of the stages, but you would just uh-huh. do so qu- more quickly. Gotcha. And which is why you did have to have a full fucking wardrobe. Right? Yep. And so the death of a child older than 10. Keep it like this sounds really callous, but keep in mind that many children did not live past infancy at this time. So the death of a child older than 10, whose name you presumably know by this point. Um, has a grieving time the same as the death of a parent, which is six months to a year, and the dress code is similar. And the time frame of moving through those three stages of mourning is similar. The death of a child... Boggled my mind. Yeah. The death of a child under 10 required six months of mourning. And when I say six months of mourning, um, for the rest of these, I will mean of going through all three stages of mourning during this time period. So the death of a child under 10 is six months. The death of an infant is a minimum of six weeks. And the death of a grandparent or sibling was six months. Aunt, uncle, nieces, or nephews, or your non-binary fill-in-the-blanks, although we didn't have those then, Um, except that we did, but (laughs) yeah. Um, Anyway, uh, that would be three months. And so this is maybe one of my favorites, which I know sounds weird, but you will get it when I say so. Um, If a friend of yours died and remembered you in their will with a little something, you would mourn them for six months. Okay. So if you added someone to your will, you added you also automatically added mourning. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, they get 25 cents. Now you gotta mourn me! Well, I mean, that was probably like, what, 200 bucks or something? <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> I mean, all right, fine. Um, so, other states of mourning could be observed by a woman as deemed appropriate. So, um you could start at a lesser stage of mourning if, like, close friends of the family passed away or if local gentry passed away um, or, say, someone from the royal family, although you might start at full mourning for something like that. Um, I can see that getting real catty. Well, yeah, and so, but not everyone would do the same thing, and there were actually, um, in newspapers, if by royal edict you were supposed to go into mourning, they told you what to wear. 
Oh, wow. Exactly what to wear. Yeah. And so if you were um, part of court, um, so anyone who attended court, which would be um, nobility, like titled Mm -hmm. people, I don't know if that involves baronets and barons because that they're technically not part of nobility it's a whole thing um but anyway if you attended court or were presented at court or would have been or could present someone at court um you were part of the court and would go into mourning with the court and have these very specific rules imposed upon you so yeah um Households sometimes went into mourning, and if you were really fucking rich, your staff went into mourning. Um, and if you wow. could afford to put your staff in black, you had more money than you knew what to do with. Um, and so, like I said earlier, um, wearing mourning was very much a status symbol and because if you could afford to wear black or you could afford a new wardrobe or you could afford any aspect of this then you would presumably be seen as part of a higher social station and so the middle class, the rising middle class wanted to rise above their stations. And so money couldn't buy you uh, entrance into aristocratic society, but it could, I mean, because it, well, I guess at some points money could buy you titles. We aren't currently you can buy a title um right yes i i looked it up when i was um after taking xanax recently i did not buy a title (laughs) um but uh, i'm seriously considering um land in scotland land in scotland yep (laughs) (laughs) just for fun um yes anyway not the point Um, it could buy you the appearance though it was well, I just want to be able to, when I fly, yes, um, to have a title as part of, like, you know, the Baroness such and such. I think that would be hilarious yes. to, yes. yeah, anyway. Um, With you on that. That is not the point. 100%. So, if you were the rising middle class... And you could afford to mourn in, like, upper-class society. You wouldn't be an aristocrat, but you might marry in to upper-class society. Maybe not the upper echelons, but certainly uh, into a class higher than you started. So that's where you get, like stupid rich merchants 
suddenly being able to marry off daughters to dukes. Yeah. Um, because often you had titles without money. Mm-hmm. Um, so the middle class really wanted to mourn like the upper classes were mourning. And so that brought on the opening of ready-to-wear mourning warehouses um, (laughs) where you could buy mourning in different price ranges. And so that was a thing that you could do, and sometimes people could only afford to buy, like, a piece of each. Like, it was... Sometimes you would wear the same thing over and over again, but not if you were rich and being seen. (laughs) Right, but it also opened the doors for you to be able to give an illusion of being higher up than you were. Yes, and could open the door to matches that you couldn't have otherwise made. Um, Ooh, Mr. Big Stuff is meowing. Um, And so also... It wasn't uncommon for working class... Mr. Big Stuff is yelling. It wasn't uncommon for working class people to die over existing garments in black to observe mourning out of either respect or um, to give the appearance of being able to afford it. It was generally pretty clear if that had, had yeah. happened. Um, but also sometimes it sometimes household staff would have died, like overdyed clothing um, instead of a full new morning wardrobe. Because buying a full new morning wardrobe for every member of your staff would be expensive. All right, so that is sort of where we land on mourning and why being able to mourn was sort of this aspirational thing. Which is so weird. Yeah, and but mourning was really expensive. And if you could yeah. afford to mourn, you could afford a place in society. So... Yeah, it's it's quite something. And the more these rules applied to you, the more mobility, upward mobility you might have. I'm down for the physical representation of mourning. Yep. Um, I kind of wish we still had that because death is so not talked about. And then... When you do know somebody's had somebody pass away, there's always that awkwardness of knowing. Yes. I mean, you know, what to say and how to. But I like, I do like a somewhat set of, I don't want to say rules, but maybe a pattern to follow. Yeah, there you go. Etiquette. That's it. Um, To be able to, to follow should you choose so that there's. A social cue that's obvious. 
Yeah. Well, and that is, when it comes down to it, the whole original point of mourning was to pay respect to the dead. I mean, you removed color from life because things were bleak. And you were sad. And it also gave a signal to the outside world of both that... Oh my gosh, Mr. Big Stuff. Um, Of both that you had experienced a loss and how recently. Yeah. And there were specific ways to interact with people depending on their stage of mourning. And so... I mean, death was extremely, extremely visible. Yeah, it was also prevalent. I mean, not that it's not now, but... So, that... uh, That kind of wraps up mourning, although I am... I, I don't understand, given how common death was at this point in history, how anyone was ever not... In right? the stage that of mourning, that was I was that that was what I was thinking too. I mean, with the whole candy one yeah. question, because I'm like, I, it, yeah. yeah. And to be clear, uh, women weren't supposed to date um, during their mourning period unless they needed to support themselves or kids. Then, then you went looking for a new. Well, then it, then it would be fine. Yeah. Let's not kill them, though. Um, <laughs> anyway. So. Yes. Right. I think that brings us to... Uh, the weekly yes. worst way to die. Da, da, da. All right. So what is yours? Uh, mine is by eating anything that Tilly cooked. Fair <laughs> enough. Mine is arsenical morning veil. There we go. So we're both in the arsenic. Yep. <laughs> no, no arsenic for us. No, no. Let's let's just not. I mean, also suffocating. Like you could suffocate under that veil. I am sure uh, multiple yeah. people have died, and the cause of death was mourning. Right. So I'm really petty. So I'm like, let me get these straight. They, these women had to walk around in poisonous veils. And wool during the summer uh-huh. in Victorian times, but motherfuckers can't wear a mask to the grocery store. Like I just—I'm just saying. Well, to be fair, motherfuckers couldn't wear more than a crepe band around their hat for the most part. Yeah, it's true. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> There's always been, yeah. <clears throat> yep. Good golly. Yeah. <sighs> so, do you want to be spooky, internet friends? Uh-huh. <laughs> we are at Bones and Bobbins on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, or you can find us at bonesandbobbins.com. It's true. And don't forget to rate and review this podcast. I know every single podcast says it, but it's because it is actually how podcasts get heard um it's that whole algorithm thing yeah blame the algorithm um so let yeah it pleases the internet gremlins so 
please the internet gremlins for us. Help us show up yes. in recommendations and help people like you and me and us find more people like us. Yes. 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 All of the uses. Yes. And on that note, let us leave you with some advice that you should never forget. Mm-hmm. Lock your doors. And don't run with scissors. <laughs> Unless you're going to stab somebody with them, but you know, that's a whole other episode. <laughs> Each episode of the Bones and Bobbins podcast is written and researched by Haley Pearson Cox and Natalie Hoyce. Our music was composed by Loyalty Freak Music. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Bones and Bobbins. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or check us out wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so you won't miss a minute of our strange and creepy content.